Well, good morning, everyone. And we have a special uh, day uh, in front of us, uh, not only because it's the day of the Lord, which makes it the most special of all, but it's also a day where we're going to celebrate um, the Lord's presence in our lives and in our city, but particularly in, with, and through our body of Christ, the church. It's a celebration to be sure that, that we will have the opportunity to, to thank uh, many of, of us, you know, will be thanking one another. But what are we thanking each other for? All these myriads and upon myriads and varieties of services and, and, and uh, ministries that, that we are participating in together. And thank God for our servant leaders, our leaders, whether they're teachers, elders, women shepherds, you know, uh, team leaders, all these people that come together and we wonder, don't we, sometimes, what is this all about? Well, today I hope to frame that very clearly in the context of spiritual gifts. What is a spiritual gift? What does it mean that, that our passage has reminded us that there's a variety of gifts, but they are in some manner related to the work of the Holy Spirit? Particularly, we find how these spiritual gifts consist of individuals, each members of a body of Christ. That is to say that as Paul describes this, he makes this incredible and audacious statement if you stop and think about this. Just imagine, maybe you've been around the church a while and we hear this little phrase, body of Christ, body of Christ. And, you know, what is that? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? Well, the answer for Paul is it means that it's the body of Christ. I mean, no, really. It's the body of Christ. So much so that per Christians were persecuted in the early centuries because uh, they thought they were eating each other, literally. Because they were told to come to the table. Listen to this passage. We'll be looking at chapter 12, but a little later, or a little earlier, Paul said this, which is going to frame this passage. He says, look, in verse 15 of chapter 10, I speak as to sensitive or, or sensible people. Judge for yourself what I have to say, as in listen carefully. I got something to tell you. <laughs> and he says it this way, and he relates it to the table, the, the high feast of their worship every Sunday. He says, look, think about this table for a moment, the cup of blessing that we bless well, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's not just a memory. There's something going on here. Something being executed here. Is it not just a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What's he talking about? He's talking about the body of Christ. Christ's body hanging on a cross, Christ's body incarnate. But Paul, if you have read Paul much at all, he makes it really plain in Ephesians, he has this way of speaking in double tongue, if you will, that, that he speaks of the body of Christ, he'll speak of the ministry of Christ, and he'll be thinking of Christ's incarnational ministry. That happened 2,000 years ago from our vantage point. But then he just quickly and effortlessly will translate into his presence and his ascension, where Christ's body is glorified in heaven. So listen carefully. I want to read it again. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many bodies are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Did you notice the we, first person plural there? We are the one body. We are the one bread. Christ is the one body. No, Christ is the one bread. Yes. No, you are the one bread. You are the one body. Yes. No. What's going on? 
It's classic, classic Chalcedonian Christology. This great council that wrestled with this idea of Christ, his nature, divine and human, distinct. They can't be confused, but never separate. Christ is Christology applied in the church of Jesus Christ. The nature of Christ, the nature of Christ is being transacted in this body of Christ. And that's going to inform the rest of our sermon as now we mine down into this great mystery that many have heard about, spiritual gifts. Ooh, what is that? And how does that relate to this Sunday where we celebrate Christ's presence in the body of Christ here at CPC New Haven. Let's pray for his presence as we come to this passage. Lord, please awaken our spirits. Help us to see what we cannot see apart from your illuminating power and miracle of your spirit, giving us dispositions to want to see it, giving us the capacity to understand it. But more so, Lord, as we see today, the capacity to partake of it. Help us to know, help us to see how you are present. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, real quickly, I want to just pass through uh, three little observations here. The first one is this word, spiritual gifts. He talks about it here. He's, he starts off now concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual, question mark. What does he mean by spiritual? Well, I think many of us would probably, if we haven't really thought about it, pass it off as a kind of, you know, spiritual. It's it's just a word that's kind of holy. It's a holy word. It's a special kind of gift, maybe. A, a type as in spiritual versus temporal kind of a gift. In other words, we kind of spiritualize the word spiritual. That's what we tend to do when we read this passage. And we just put it aside as, well, somehow, you know, it's just in a different realm, maybe. A different category than, say, a tangible gift like, a, you know, a car. Nobody's given me a car recently, but that'd be a cool gift. But we wouldn't call it a spiritual gift, I guess. That's what we mean. Or does it mean spiritual as in Holy Spirit created, Holy Spirit anointed, Holy Spirit actively engaged the person and work of the third person of the Trinity and a gift from the Holy Spirit a power from the Holy Spirit, an illumination from the Holy Spirit. Which is it? Is it spiritual gifts or is it the Spirit's gift or spiritual gifts? Hmm. Again, I think most of us would have to say that indirectly the Holy Spirit must be involved. It is spiritual. But nothing more than doing something in the realm of where the Holy Spirit is doing something. But look again. He goes on to explain some things. He says, verse 2. Now, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And now I want you to listen to how many times the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is going to be invoked in this passage. He picks it up in verse 3. Therefore, over against these other gods, these other idols... Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, somehow these spiritual gifts are set in contrast to all the other kinds of activities that is related to idolatry. So this isn't a distinction between temporal gifts and spiritual gifts. For Paul, it's the, this is the key, for Paul it's a distinction from idolatry gifts and Holy Spirit gifts. And then going on, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but the same Lord. 
The same God, I'm kind of flipping through here. If you follow me, you'll see I'm skipping a few verses. The same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit, not a spirit or spiritual. The Holy Spirit. To each of you, to each of us, the body of Christ, those are for real Christians participating in the life of the church, is given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good of the body of Christ. He then goes on and pick verse 8, and he begins to pick up on this. For to one is given through the Spirit, and he, and he goes and begins to list all these various services and gifts. And each one he attributes to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, verse 8. Holy Spirit, verse 8 again. Holy Spirit, verse 9. Holy Spirit, verse 10. On it goes. I won't bore you. And he concludes in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. Huh? Now you heard it in verse 10, chapter 10. So it is with Christ. I thought we were talking about the church. Paul says, we are talking about the church. No, you're talking about Christ. Yeah, we are talking about Christ. Are you getting this? For in one spirit, verse 13, we were all baptized into one body. There's the mystery of baptism, the mystery of the sacramental union of Christ to his people, wherein the flesh of Christ enlivens the flesh of the people of God, wherein they become in Christ by the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ on earth. Distinct? Yes. But separate? No. That's the theology. Clearly, spiritual gift is related to a unique activity of the third person of the Holy Trinity. And then notice how this unique activity of the third person of the Holy Spirit will apply to all sorts of services, some rather unextraordinary. That is, utilizing ordinary abilities and, and capabilities, ex experiences, some extraordinary. That is, somewhat supernatural. And finally, notice that these services are not for individuals, even if given to individuals to perform. But rather, they are given for the common good of the body of Christ. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Herein, we have the emergence of a definition, and that's, when part, that's my part one. What is a spiritual gift? Well, hopefully you could frame a definition based on what you've just learned. I'll put it in my own language, but it's something like this. The spiritual gifts are the unique and special manifestations and gifts of the Holy Spirit to each and every individual Christian, wherein by their common and uncommon services, they make Christ present and powerful in the flesh of the body of Christ for the common good of the body of Christ. That's my definition. That is to say that the church is a collaboration of people who have been anointed of God. Anointed of God. Now, with this somewhat definition of, of spiritual gifts. I want us to put this into the context of redemptive history. If you know anything about Christianity, and particularly Paul and his uh, method, his rhetorical method in defending and arguing for Christianity, you will know that Christianity is presented by the apostles not as a new religion. It's presented as the same religion in its in its, in its sort of fulfillment manifestation. Or to put it another way, there's, it's like a novel, and we are now in the last chapter, where all these other events and all these other uh, characters all have played a role in a story and a narrative that now has become of age. That's the language. I could use the word eschatology, but, but that's the idea here that that Paul's rhetoric, if you were a theologian, would say is, is, is consistently eschatological. 
That is to understand Christianity within a history of God's manifestation and presence and salvation throughout the, the history of the world. It's big. It's unique. And it's the fulfillment of, it's the maturation of, if you will. It's the culmination of all these previous things. And I say that because you're going to see in a minute why what Paul is saying, if you understand the history of God in, in world history, if you will, in creation history, in, into redemptive history, you would understand that what he's saying is, is not new. So let me just very briefly give you a survey. You can kind of sit back and just kind of enjoy this a little bit, okay? Just a real brief one. The Spirit's work, because there's a lot of confusion sometimes about the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of you know I'm about to tackle a big issue, but it's not going to be that big a deal. The Spirit's work in the Old Testament is the granting of the ability for service just as Paul is talking about here. Much like the way that spiritual gifts operate in the New Covenant, the Spirit would gift certain individuals for certain services. Consider, for example, the example of Exodus 31 and Bezalel, I think is the way you'd say it, Bezalel, who was gifted to do, to, to do much of the artwork related to the tabernacle. Furthermore, recalling the selective and temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we see that these individuals were gifted to perform all kinds of tasks. Let me read it again. You heard it. But see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood to work in every craft. Now, what is interesting about that? The Holy Spirit is here attributed with the spiritual gift of art. That's what's happening here. Now, is the gift of art unique to the Spirit of, of, of the Holy Spirit? In other words, are only people filled with the Holy Spirit given the work of art, or the gift of art? No. There have been many. So what makes this so unique? It's, it's taking a common, you could say. It's taking an ordinary, well, artists I don't think are ordinary, okay? We all know that. Now, you can interpret that any way you want. No, I'm playing. No, I think they're just beautiful. I, the, the beautiful minds, the beautiful hands, artists are beautiful. And, um, and so, but it, but so I don't mean to say common in the sense that it's boring or humdrum or any of that. It's very unboring to me. But what I'm saying is that, that it's not unique that Christians can be artistic or that here a, a Jew could be artistic. What is unique is that this art is spirit-filled. This art is set apart that which is common becomes, is utilized for an uncommon purpose. That which is, 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 is secular, if you will, becomes sacred. Now, you might recognize those words. I got to turn this phone off. I'm sorry. It's just going off, and I'm, I meant to do it before the thing. Boom, it's gone. You're not going to hear it anymore. Um, and so... Uh, I come to the table, and you've heard me say a prayer something like this, or us, I shouldn't say me, just me. Lord, take that which is common and set it apart for its uncommon use. Take that which is unsacred and make it sacred. Because in the mystery of the union of the Holy Spirit with this bread and with this wine, it becomes to us not organically, but by infusion by the Spirit, a means of redemptive, salvific grace. That's what happens. And this table, think of this table, not just as a symbol, not just as a metaphor, but as an execution of, Christ, of the Holy Spirit's presence in our midst, which informs everything we do in this church. The bread and the wine, according to Paul in chapter 10, as I read earlier, now becomes the, the means through which we understand all of the gifts within the body of Christ. 
I am, sac- I am right now preaching the gospel. I'm preaching. I'm prophesying. That's what we understand prophesying to be. I am prophesying. Now, I learned Greek and Hebrew and homiletics and all these other kind of things, and you don't need to be a Christian to, to learn all that stuff. But there's a mystery. That which is common, Greek and Hebrew. That which is unsacred, knowledge of, of, of rhetoric and how to you know, speak in a public way, in a, in a logical way, whatever you want to call it. All of that's common. But now, right now, here, it is set up the Holy Spirit to become the voice of God in the voice of the people. The voice of God from heaven. Now, we're going to qualify not infallibly, and its impact might not be necessarily immediately. We're not looking for a magic show here. We don't believe that. That would diminish the power, actually. But yes, we believe that the word of God becomes the word, is the word of God in Scripture. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can be subtracted to it, but the word of God becomes efficaciously the word of God in the life of people through preaching. There's a great confession of, in three, about 300 years ago, the Helvetic Confession, and it's, it speaks of the preaching event as the word of God that becomes the word of God to the people. There's a mystery there. It's based on the mystery of our sacramental table, which then informs this body of Christ and everything we do becomes a sacramental event. I walked in the door today. I saw people scurrying around, setting up those tables. And I, knowing I'm going to preach this sermon, thought with a smile, wow, the sacraments have already begun. And they have. That's what's happening. It's powerful. Do you see what's going on? We see it, the Spirit, how, and I'll say this quickly, the Spirit came upon such Old Testament people as Joshua in Numbers, as David in 1 Samuel, as Saul in Samuel. In the book of Judges, we see each judge set apart where there's this coming upon them, this anointing of the Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and I have now Judges 3, Judges 6, Judges 11, Judges 13, Judges 14, Judges 14 again, Judges 15, all dealing with these various judges who each one were set apart by the Holy Spirit. Samson, for instance. He had certain natural gifts that got set apart as a means of grace in bringing salvation to Israel. And on it would go. The Holy Spirit came upon these individuals for specific tasks sometimes. The indwelling was a sign, yes, of God's favor upon that individual in the case of David. And if God's favor left an individual, the Spirit would also depart from that individual. Listen to 1 Samuel 16, for instance. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, speaking of David. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now stop there for a minute. Paul will use that language in the laying on of hands. Wherever you see, we're going to talk about that maybe later. We're going to talk about it when we talk about an elder being anoint, uh, laying on of hands. But we're going to look at that, and this idea of the laying on of hands was a both in the Old and New Testament with the, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Paul even makes this admonition to Timothy that, that not to forget the laying on of hands, and then he equates that with, with, with his being filled with the Spirit for the purpose of ministry. And so then it goes on to say, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, next verse, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, And now, it says, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Paul. I mean, I'm sorry, Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. That puts shivers on my back. As a Christian, as a true born-again Christian, saved by grace, now y'all going to listen to this real carefully, aren't you? I'm just going to have to tell you, you really got to listen to this. 
I don't want to mislead you. As a Christian, the spirit is democratized in a way in which all those who put their hope and faith in Christ, well, you wouldn't do that except that God had already anointed you with the spirit of belief, of faith. Faith is a free gift of God, we're told, by the Holy Spirit. We call it many things, effectual calling, regeneration. But, but that is something that never departs us. Those, Paul will argue, who are elect, those who've been repressing, those who've been given the spirit, it's not taken away. You will be given that same spirit of perseverance. You may fall, you may sin, but you will be brought back over and over again to repentance and faith. The life of a Christian is not the life of perfection. You hear me? It is not the life of someone by the Holy Spirit now being per perfect. That Holy Spirit will manifest itself in your life, Christian, and that you will fall, you will struggle, but where sin abounds in your life, and there will be times and manners in which it will, we're told that the grace of God abounds all the more. So there's nothing that I'm about to say that should even come close to thinking that God's elect, those who God has given the spirit of faith, believing faith, will not continue to persevere in that faith by the power of the Holy Spirit until they die. And that's what will happen. I said persevere, didn't I? I said coming back like I do every week and like you do every week, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry again, God. I just, I, I got to do better, but it's more than that. Because God says, hey, I know. And yes, you need to take it seriously. But I love you. I love you for the mere good pleasure of loving you. I gave you my spirit. I gave you my promise. And you will repent. You will confess your sins. You will believe yet again for that occasion. And you'll be continuing the, in the walk of saving repentance and faith. Okay, we got all that straight? Right? I could hear something right now. Yep. All right. Man, we gotta get some, we gotta get some charismata in this place. So now I'm gonna say though, something that does I, I something I do fear is there is a kind of spiritual gift that can be taken away. We recognize that even in our tradition where where we can renege, if you will, an ordination. That is to say that these gifts are manifestations of the Holy Spirit even as we saw at the very beginning of the passage, they are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not to the lordship of some other idol. Now I'm talking to every leader in this room and I'm really talking right here because I'm feeling it. Don't be quite so casual about this, Preston. When I begin to submit my life and my efforts and my services, but for sordid gains and for all other sorts of things, the Spirit of God will be lifted. I hadn't lost my salvation. You got that right? But I'm no longer, I'm no longer set apart to do a service until it could be done in the service of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we see here. We see again in this coming through, if you could read the work of Acts and how often it is said that they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What was that? It wasn't receiving the Holy Spirit of salvation in this case. It was receiving the Holy Spirit of ordination. That is commissioning, that is to be set apart for a service, a spiritual gift to the body of Christ. And on it goes. So that's my second part, and now I'm going to close with a third. I want to go back now to this passage, and I want us to talk about how are we going to discern spiritual gifts. And here are four ways. Four ways that I see here distinguishes a spiritual gift from just any other gift. Here we go. If you're taking notes, some of you do. I don't. You can. Number one, Christ-centered leadership or lordship. Again, I'll read it. You know that you, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God, 
you could just as well say participating in the Spirit of God, could ever say in so many words, could ever live out a confession with respect to Jesus is accursed. Now, what's he saying? He goes on to say, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can live the Lordship of Christ, confess the Lordship of Christ, except by the Holy Spirit. What's he saying is that the Holy Spirit can never, caution number one, never be distinguished from the ministry of Jesus Christ. It is always Christ in the mystery of his union with the third person, the Holy Spirit, that is with us when the Holy Spirit is acting. And so Paul's point is this is totally, ridiculously illogical to think that the Holy Spirit could be at work in the world and not in the name of Jesus Christ. Now this is important. We leave it in air of global, uh, you know, there, there's a movement of what's called Trinitarianism. Now, there's some aspect of that movement that we might all buy into, hopefully, because we do believe in the Trinity, and we believe it's probably been lost in some ways. We need to talk more about it and really help people understand the nature of that and the ministry of that and the redemption of that. That's all good. But Leslie Newbigin had a big fight with the World Council of Churches because when they went to Trinitarianism, it was move away from Christocentric mission. It was moved away from Christ-centered mission. It became the Holy Spirit of God working through creation, working through all people of all faiths and none. This, what we would call the common grace of God, but not, and yes, you could say the work of God in the world, his common grace. But this is different. This is the Holy Spirit, the one sent of Christ in his name. I mean, let me just give you, and again, I don't mean, I'm saying this because I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that, that many of us are getting confused. Sometimes our love of the arts, sometimes our love of justice, sometimes our love of other things can begin to hold it. Is this a work of the Holy Spirit? And is this a work of God? We could say yes to God, of course. The God of creation, the God of providence, the work of the Spirit in providence, to be sure. But that's distinguished from redemptive work from this salvific, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that makes sacramental meals out of bread and wine, that makes sacramental bodies out of human flesh, members of the body of Christ. It's different. In other words, let me read a prayer, a prayer that's published by uh, the WCC. And again, there may, there may be Christians in the WCC, the World Council of Churches. This is not about individuals, whether Christians or not, and whether we should be gracious, and whether we have fellowship with churches that may affirm this. But just listen to the prayer. I, I hate doing this. I rarely do it, but, but I think it's really important for you to at least see the difference. Imagine the prayer uh, that Paul would write for his church based on what he just said. And then listen to this prayer. Nothing wrong you're going to hear in some ways, but what's lacking? O giver of life, who brought all things into being, this is the prayer on Pentecost, who brought all things into being, sustain and replenish your whole creation, that it may reflect your glory. Come Holy Spirit, and illumine our hearts and minds. Come Holy Spirit, renew the whole creation. And it goes on and on with a word, with not a word, that would connect the Holy Spirit to Christ and it ends, amen. You see, that is not what Paul is talking about here. The spirit of creation. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Listen to this, and I'm going to say this really clear so you can hear. Preston, show me this in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to show it to you right now. It's just clear as a bell. When Jesus starts talking about leaving for his ascension ministry, you remember in chapter 14 of John, maybe, that he begins to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the way he frames it, very intentionally. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, so far, okay. What do we know about this helper? A couple of verses later. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance, all things that I have said to you. 
It's got to be Christocentric if it's the Holy Spirit's work. A couple of verses later, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, says Jesus. Me. He will bear witness about me. And on this goes. He says, nevertheless, I tell you in the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who sent him to us? Christ. Why? To wear witness to Christ. What? To teach what Christ has taught. It's all about Jesus. It's no accident that when Paul preaches, I mean, when Peter preaches a sermon in Pentecost, everybody's waiting for a sermon on the Holy Spirit, right? Wrong. He preaches Christ. And Christ is in the midst of you. By the Holy Spirit, he's in the midst of you. Do you understand how that relates down to you? You, given the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, for services, for the purpose of Christ's flesh remaining on earth through you. That was my first point. It's got to be Christ-centered. And any movement, whether charismatic, global religion, I didn't talk about the more individualistic-oriented charismatic movement that tends to make it all about me and my fulfillment and my self-actualization and, and, and work and all of that. It's always about Christ for the common good of the body of Christ. Number two, we see that there are varieties of services and everyone participates. This is not a select group of people Within the church, every member, Paul will say it this way in chapter 12 of Romans, he'll, he'll exhort the Christians of Rome that, that we're to submit ourselves as spiritual services of worship. You become part of the sacramental worship of God. And then he lists these services, things that are, you would think are some of them are very mundane. You know, those who help each other, those who have gifts of this and that, and, and it's like, wow, but they're becoming Christ in the life of the body of Christ. Now, there are many varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God who empowers them all and everyone. There's the key. And then, of course, a non-exhaustive list will follow in verse 8. And again, I won't read over it all over again. There seems, you see, to be an unlimited type of gifts or services. If someone were to say to you, oh, come to a seminar on a spiritual gift, and then they're going to say, there are 10 spiritual gifts, then I already know I'm in the wrong place. A spiritual gift is unlimited in variety, but it's always situational. Unlimited in variety, but always situational. That is, in relation to what God is doing in, with, and through the body of Christ in a particular place in a particular time. Did you hear that? Because, see, the church is not abstract. The body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, is not a platonic concept. The church is tactile. It is local most essentially. Secondarily, it's global. And in its locality, there is a situation going on there. Have you ever noticed how all the letters, all the books in the Bible are situational? There's no, here's the doctrinal book on blank. It makes me wonder about our publishing habits and why we've turned to this modernist way of creating these sort of books on blank. Maybe we'd get better theology if we just read the, the letters and the policies and the pastoral memos that are given to churches in situations. But that's how we hear it, and that's how we learn it in the New Testament. Situational theology. Situational ministry. And so you, what do you do? Do you walk into a church and say, I've got the gift of... Well, that would not make a bit of sense to Paul. He'd go, huh? No, you are being filled with the Holy Spirit in a situational manner, which is related to the situation on the ground in this particular place at this particular time. So you come and you discern, you do inventory of, your, of what's happening, you do inventory of yourself and you say, hey, here is something I have a burden for. Here's something I don't think is being done very well. That's, by the way, a, a, a clue 
You come in and you start thinking, I'm not sure I like the way that's being done. Well, you could just need to wait and be gracious and ask a few questions, of course. And maybe you find out that it was a situational thing here that didn't maybe match what was going on there, but it might match here. But oftentimes, oftentimes, I must admit, there's a weakness and someone, God has sent someone to see it and says, hey, I think I'd love to help this church do better at this. Bring it on. Bring it on. That's what it make, takes. That's, that's wonderful. Because you're, you're adapting yourself to a situation. So number two, it's situational. It's a variety of gifts, unlimited, but it's always situation. It can be skills that you already have, and you can see that this church doesn't seem to have those kind of skills. The next church may have those kind of skills. So maybe it's going to be another skill that's going to be your spiritual gift to that church. Spilled by the Holy Spirit. You know, there are a lot of churches I might go to and I say, they don't need another preacher. Now, at least this time in my life, I probably wouldn't go there. But that being said, no, I'll probably, I don't know. That's, that's who even said that. You know, it gets too complicated. But the, you get my point, right? My point is, is that, that, that you go and you match yourself to the body of Christ situationally and you discover ways that you matter. But I'm going to tell you something. There's not a man, woman, or child in this room that does not have the capacity to be anointed of the Holy Spirit to do something in the situation of Christ Presbyterian Church, New Haven. Every one of you, if you're Christians, has that capacity, more so has that need. I often say it when we meet as men, you know, one reason we brought you here is because we need you somewhere. Find where it is. That's number two. Number three, common good. I've kind of mentioned this, so I'm not going to have to say it much more. But he makes it very clear how we are all baptized into one body and all were made to drink of one spirit and how that relates then for the common good, as he says in verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. This is the spiritual gifts are not then defined by what they do, but how they are done as empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. I think I just spoke on that pretty, uh, pretty much, kind of warped over into this. So I'm going to skip that one, and I'm going to go to the final one. Organically, here's the fourth point, that the body of Christ, the spiritual gifts, are always organically united so as to be an essential element of the gospel as it is fleshed out in the body of Christ. That is to say, no gift is unimportant. No gift can stand alone. He really picks this up in verse 14. We didn't read that. I was just going to allude to it. But he makes it over and over and over a point how this body doesn't, this part of the body doesn't survive apart from this part of the body. Let me read it. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. They're all essential, you see. The ear should not say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would make it any less a part of the body. So he's saying every gift, every service, every anointed person in this room is essential to the health and well-being of this church. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I would love to make a sermon right now, and I could to say, if you're not exercising your spiritual gift, you are not living the fulfilled, the fully fulfilled Christian life. Every one of you and us and me should be active, partaking of the body of Christ by means of our becoming to this congregation a piece of the body, is what Paul says. And that's essential, he says, for the body to fulfill its mission and its purpose of redemption in the city. But then he goes on to say this, just to make it clear, that you cannot therefore say, to the hand, I have no need of you. And he goes on and says that many ways. He says, in those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, that there be, be no division in the body, for if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The take home is this. You could say it in a negative fashion. If you're sitting in the seat and you're not partaking of the body of Christ by becoming a part of the body of Christ, 
by virtue of your exercise, of your talents, abilities, etc., by the Holy Spirit anointed for the redemptive purpose of, of Christ through his church, well, we're suffering. We're suffering. Now, again, gifts can be so many things. It, it can be the gifts of money. Let's just put it out there. It's true. It can be gifts of services. Let's put it out there. It's true. It, it can be gifts of teaching. It can be a gifts of, 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 of prayer. It can be gifts of, and it just, it's unlimited. It's unlimited. Setting, being, being the guy that's there whenever the people need stuff done. That's a spiritual gift. The utility player we call it on the baseball field. Boy, do we need utility players. <laughs> people just show up to events because they know somewhere something's going to have to be done and they're there to do it. Boy, do we need utility players. That's an awesome ministry. I could just go on and on. It's just unlimited. Well, let me close the sermon this way. We're going to take a time in this service. We're going to give a extended amount of time uh, for you to celebrate the parts of the body of Christ that make this body the presence of Christ. Be thinking about it. Who do you want to just say, man, I thank God. You could call it a spirit, for the spiritual gift of Billy Bob who came to my house the other day and brought me food and how that just made me know Christ was... That, that's what I mean by sharing. I celebrate the spiritual gift of Sally Sue didn't just say Sally. And on it goes. Well, here's what I've got in my mind. I'm celebrating right now. So let me just try to, to start the conversation. In my mind's eye, I see the following images based on a mere single day. Unfortunately, my uh, trip to GA it was, it was a whirlwind, nonstop. I get on a plane, I come back. Uh, what is it about the airlines? They don't cancel them anymore, you know, so you can get your money back. They just delay, you know, hour after an hour after an hour. My flight leaves at 8.30 in the night. They delayed on an hourly basis until it didn't leave until 8.45 the next morning. I mean, come on, somebody write a letter, would they? So I show up here at about 9.30, 10, and I make my rounds around on Friday uh, to various places of, of our impact week. Here's some of my images I see a faithful and devoted Christian busy about the front lawn, making sure that everything's in the right place for an inaugural impact week. I see a doctor reviewing medical information sheets. I see a couple corralling kids to get wet sponge balls thrown at each other. I see a woman with a whistle in her mouth with a positive tone encouraging a girl who was half the size of the boy that she just took the ball away from. I see an older man who is walking around the school campus, a man who lives in the hill, a man who I know suffers deeply with brokenness, but his job was to make sure that nothing bad happens on the campus. I see a high school kid tossing the ball to a kid who is sitting alone on the bench alongside the basketball court. I see shall we say, an older woman with her hands raised up high as she expressed something, I don't know what, to a group of kids in the art room. I see a quilt in the hands of another woman eager to show me what the kids were enabled to do working together and its service to the church. I hear about the acrostic grace as it is related to the lessons being taught by teachers. I turn to the corner to see a man with a chainsaw Literally, as I turn the corner, as I see the chainsaw and as I watch a tree fall right in front of me, they called him the Spider-Man. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Because he, he, he acts like a spider getting on and off the roof. I talked with a man who I know has a history, a very, very broken history, who is the, quote, captain of the Mercy Project a history of falls and get-back-ups, a man who is broken, who's not been able to keep a job, who falls back to the patterns of hopelessness, but has a heart so big for hopefulness. I talked to him, as we've talked many times before, and 
I look at his face, I look at his chest, it's, it's boasting, it's proud, it's positive. He's shouting commands to everyone in that yard that would be his superior in the worldly context. But there he was the boss. I see, well, you think you get the point. In less than a half day, I saw so much. And what was I seeing, really? I can tell you with utmost confidence, I was seeing Jesus Christ, period. No qualifications. And now we come to this particular day when we are, will not only celebrate a week, but a year, a year of servant leadership. And what do I see? I see a teacher busily setting up their rooms and their materials, materials that have been carefully planned out throughout the week based on a curriculum. I see a nursery worker holding a crying baby as I'm trying to climb over the fence to get up to my study half the time. I see a person cleaning the church early in the morning when no one is present. I see a building worker that I bump into every so often around the campus fixing things and maintaining things that are directly related to our worship of God. I see a coordinator organizing a team, a team leader leading from the front amidst a world that wants to sit on the back seat. I see an AV worker adapting to a last-minute schedule change last week. Thank you. A musician practicing on Wednesday nights when others are downstairs being taught. I see a preacher starting his study for the next week as early as Monday morning. A shepherd elder in session till sometimes late at night discerning the spirit of God for our congregation and visiting a member during the week. An SLB leader making sure the body of Christ is the body of Christ through recruiting and planning and leading, doing all sorts of services and chores where we get to eat together and socialize together and extend help in times of need together. I see an older man who should be living a, a life of ease in his retirement that has made it his ambition to bear the burdens of our congregation through mercy giving, sitting with him just the other day with a man who is dying, with a family who is trying to piece it all together. And on and on it goes. I see in you, most blessed people, the body of Christ. And I do thank you. That's my sharing. Let's go on. Let's keep sharing. 